so I'm here with uh, Mr. Donald Archibald. Would you prefer to be called Donald or Don? Don. Don. Uh, and he was uh, he was a CUSO volunteer in Papua New Guinea from 1987 to, to 1990. Uh, so Don, if you tell me a little bit about your experience. What was that like? Well, I can honestly say that I didn't go as a youth. I went as a middle-aged man, and uh, it was life-changing for me. Um, growing up and living and working in Canada for the first 40 years, and then suddenly going to the highlands of Papua New Guinea and meeting and 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 working with people born in the Stone Age. It was amazing. And I ended up staying there until about 2002 and never really came back to Canada to work and only came home to retire. Wow. So it was life-changing. So what, what, were, what were you like when you came home? Well, I'm... I basically, I came home as the culture shock that was, uh, you can well imagine. Um, you know, your priorities are totally different. Um, your whole experience was different. I wasn't a volunteer the whole time. Obviously, I ended up on contract, and I was working for different employers, and including, including the United Nations. Um, but uh, what I learned was more than I gave, for sure. I mean... I learned and experienced so much. It's impossible to recount it all. And now that becomes uh, part of me. That is me. And so I came home to retire, and I'm very happy to be home. Um, You know, but after 20 years, uh, I am a different person. I can imagine. What, What were some of the things you were responsible for while you were there? I started out with my CUSO um, job description, working with the primary school teachers in the uh, province of Enga, um, in the community schools. And basically what we were trying to do was they had a system of education that was based on the Australian colonial model. And we were trying to do extension work basically agriculture, nutrition and health through the community school teachers so I was working in the provincial education office and traveling all through the the province to the various schools getting to know the teachers and also the other bonus was um, the school system had a system of work one day a week for parents in they could work at the school instead of paying school fees because most people had no money so they could work at the school so every once a week the parents would gather at the school and we would have an opportunity to talk directly to the parents and to discuss educational issues with the parents of the children and to do the agricultural extension not only through the children but to to the parents. And what did some of the parents tell you? Well, the parents... Our parents everywhere are the same, aren't they? They're born in the Stone Age. They wanted education for their children. They wanted the children to learn English and to get a job and send money home. Um, and it was kind of... But they understood the problems clearly, just like anyone else, that the school system wasn't working. And it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. It wasn't doing what it promised to do. And um, so they understood the need for a relevant education for their children. And the issue that emerged most strongly 
was the issue of language, is that the children didn't understand the language of instruction and the teachers didn't speak their language. So in the Enga province, we were lucky that it has a large language group, so the teachers, many of the teachers did speak Enga and they, they, were, they were explaining things to the children in, in mother tongue. But most children by the age of two, we were losing 50% of the kids by grade two. And so, like, there was really no education for them at all. And so, we basically, I became directly involved with that major change, which was the the introduction of a three-year initial education program in mother tongues. And this became national policy at the end of my tenure. Wow. That's, that's a great legacy to leave behind. It was amazing, yeah. I, I started a pilot project in one province in, in 1991 uh, with, I had, I think, 12 teachers or 14 teachers, 14 teachers in three schools, no, in eight schools, sorry, 14 teachers in eight schools in three languages in Mill Bay province. And when I left in 2001, I had 7,800 teachers in 5,600 village schools in 350 languages. It was amazing. So let me, uh, this might be a, a bit of a challenging question, but in, in, the, in the province in Papua New Guinea where you were, where you were located, what is education for? Yeah, well that was the problem. Um, and that's why CUSO sent me there in the first place. Was education basically was, was a, a colonial model to teach children a national language, which was English, and to, to prepare them for some kind of work in the civil service or government job or some form of work. Well, in 1975, when PNG got independence, if you had a grade 6 education and actually ended up with a grade 10 education high school at the time, you probably could get a job with the government because there were so few Papua New Guineans in the handover. But by the time I arrived in 1987, that was totally untrue. So you had a terrible, terrible situation that evolved, and that was that parents and, and extended families in tribes would work very hard to pay school fees to send a child to school, usually a boy, the eldest boy, and he would graduate from grade 10 and look for a job and there was no job. So he became a failure because he could not do what the primary purpose was, was to get a job and send money home to parents. So he basically became ashamed and became alienated from his own people. And as a result, they would migrate to the cities and towns, mostly Port Moresby or Ley, and they would join criminal gangs. So then you went to work in So this was the, the seed of the terrible social problems that Papua New Guinea still has today was right there in the education system. That's, that's quite striking. So the mandate that we were given was to make education more relevant to children so they could stay home with their 
parents in the village where they had resources. They had land. They weren't poor. You can preserve the culture. And to preserve their culture and to use their own resources, which were wonderful resources. They, the land grew anything. It was volcanic soil. Right. <laughs> I, I used to say, because I'm not a great agriculturalist, but they say, how do you propagate this or whatever? How do you, and when you break a piece off, stick it in the ground, it grows. You water it. it, yeah, water it. Well, you didn't have to water it. Yeah, fair <laughs> it rained every afternoon, 4 o'clock. <laughs> you know, so they had the resources, and they had land, and they had a home, and they had the resources to build a home, as long as they stayed home. But the education system was totally alienating them from that. And I don't have to tell you, by the time they got to dormitory-style high schools far away from their village, it was like the residential schools in Canada. It was a horrible system. And do, do you, have, you, have you seen that anywhere else in the world? Sorry? Have you seen that anywhere else in the world? Well, I saw it in the residential schools of Canada. Right. But, uh, yes, I saw it in many places, uh, including, well, because I ended up working in many countries, uh, like, but minorities in all major countries, like Vietnam or Cambodia or Myanmar, they all suffer the same problem. They're, they're, they're forced out of their culture to join the majority culture, and then they can't go home, basically. And, I mean, other countries were more advanced than Papua New Guinea in terms of work or the kind of economy, the money economy. Papua New Guinea was basically a subsistence culture. I mean, when I went there in the, in the highlands... It was still a subsistence culture. So you can change the whole culture in, in just a generation, I guess, then. Definitely. And remember, the first Europeans went to the highlands of New Guinea in the 1950s. So, like, they hadn't had contact with yeah. the outside world for very long. And then I ended up working in all the provinces, including the, 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 the coastal provinces and the islands off the north coast. But, but when I initially started and where I got my introduction to New Guinea, of course, was in Nyanga, where they were still discovering tribes. Wow. And I really, for some reason, just found a... Found a I clicked with the teachers and I clicked with the people for some reason, for whatever personality, whatever happened. I ended up getting adopted by two tribes. Uh, and that was those are long stories you won't get into now. But, but um, and, and I heard the previous thing too. One of the things was that I was always myself. I was always a Canadian living in New Guinea. I was never one of them. And they didn't want me to be. No. And nor should you be. Nor should I be. I was Don, and I was Mr. Don, and I was different. But they loved me for what I was, and I loved them for what they were. And I think that's why we hit it off. That's great. And, of course, they introduced me to experiences that I can't hardly describe. Not in my wildest imagination could I ever have come up with these scenarios. <laughs> could you tell me maybe just a quick story about, so, so we can end on a positive note, about just something that, that really really sticks with you as a positive experience? Well, it was all positive in the sense that I learned so much and, and I had experiences. But the magic of some of the experiences that you could never imagine or even um, hope to, to, to seek out, uh, just the magic of some of the experiences I had living in the villages with the people traveling 
awareness. Traveling from island to island in the middle of the night under the moonlight in a, in a boat with no lights and the phosphorescence of the sea around you. I mean, just experiences. And then the people, just the people. The, I, you know, uh, I, I became very close to a number of people. You know. I suppose letters and interviews don't do justice. No. I mean, you know, but I mean, I, one small positive example. I mean, uh, I met a, I met a, a, a brand new new graduate teacher in the furthest remote school of the Enga when he was a new graduate. Dixon Maki was his name, and uh, he almost became well. He became like an adopted son, and he ended up as the minister of education. No way. <laughs> you know, so I mean, you know. It, I had my influences, <laughs> and, and 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 that's one of the reasons I got adopted was because I was like Dixon's father. So when he became the minister, I became like the secretary for education. <laughs> John, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today, and uh, I really hope that you you have a great time. Today. Indeed, I'm going to look forward to this.